Uh, and I think one of the arguments, not only of the modernists, but even with some of the anthropocentrists, would accept that actually these communities do come about at a certain point in time. They're not going back into our ancient prehistory, but actually uh, have a particular origin point. Uh, I'm just going to skip this and move to a discussion of. So we want to ask the question, how did ethnic groups emerge? Um, we know that people have culture. They speak a certain language. They may have a certain religious belief. They may have certain forms of pottery and other forms of material culture. So that's there already. But that's not really what we mean by ethnicity. Because you could be sitting in a village speaking a particular dialect of a particular language. Uh, and practicing a particular form of pottery and have no consciousness of any being part of any broader and wider community. Uh, now just as an example here, I have a map of North America and uh, it's colored in by the language families, the native Indian and Inuit uh, language families that were there before Europeans arrived. And you can see you know, these the big areas for example, this Eskimo loot area in purple, or the Athabascan region uh, in northwestern Canada. Um, and you know, you might say, oh, well, Athabascans, that, that's an ethnic group. Uh, anyone know why that might be a problematic statement? Why couldn't we say, oh, Athabascan, they're here, this is their territory, they're an ethnic group? Any thoughts? Because they're anticipating like North Mexico, they're just the same type. No, no, that's not it. No, no. Um, okay, so what you have to, and this is where we're trying to get at this, this point about the definition of ethnicity, uh, which is a subjective one. Did, did you want to? Uh, is perhaps that because um, uh, they don't have uh, written languages, they have no history? So that's connect, you're right, that's connected to the answer. It's when you say history. It's about subjectivity, this idea of people having an identity and a belief that they are all connected. And the problem with this is, this is a map that's been created by scientists and anthropologists and historians who are outsiders. So they've said, aha, these language groups exist, that the languages are connected, and so we'll draw those lines as to where the people are that speak those languages. But if the people in these areas don't realize that they're part of this whole, they may only know their own village. And they just, that's all they know. They may know the next, this group may know this, this group, but they not, may not have any awareness of being part of this. And how um, do they get awareness to be part of a Right, so, so you wouldn't be an ethnic group unless all these people were aware of of this and that they were different from these other groups. Isn't it because just because of colonization that we have that essentially those former because if they were there long enough, they would probably go towards a form of race. Well, not necessarily, because actually they could have been there for thousands of years and were there for thousands of years. But if they were just living in local areas, local villages, their only interactions are with <laughs> other tribes who speak variants of the same language. So they don't actually understand, they can't imagine this huge territory. It's, it takes, you know, I've driven from there down to there and it takes like 16 hours. 
that's with a nice road. When you say identity, they don't identify with the green area, for example. So that's an identity in itself for, for differentiating between two different types. Right, so, so maybe the people on, on these boundaries between colors have a sense, okay, they're speaking a language I can't even understand, okay? But still, if people only ever travel within a, a radius that's that big, they're not going to get us, they're not going to be able to imagine all of this. They don't have a map. They don't have a census. They don't know anybody from up here. You need to have internal communication that's long distance in order for these people to have an imagination. You need to see a map. Oh, okay, that's where we are and that's where they are. You actually have to create this, construct that identity. It's not just there, just because people have related culture. And we'll see this, I'll show you a map of Africa, I'll show you a map of Europe, which is similar. But it's just to say that just because you share a similar language that's maybe mutually understandable doesn't make you a, an ethnic group. You, you are just a culture zone. So that's a culture zone that's been delineated by social scientists or explorers or missionaries or people from outside who say, oh, you know, they speak somewhat similar languages, so we're going to put them in that category. That category doesn't yet have meaning for the people inside it. It's only got meaning, perhaps, for the outsider. Yeah? Um, is it correct that these tribes are descended from the Mongols across the various strand? If it is true, are there any choice of Mongolian in these languages? Uh, that I don't know. I, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I don't know. There are uh, some groups in Siberia that have uh, some links, I think, to the Inuit up here. So, yeah, Siberia, which is, you know, over there, you can see a little bit of purple. So there's some links that way, but I'm, I don't think there's any link once you get further into the continent. But anyway, but that's, but in a way this is to focus on the wrong, I mean, even if there was a link, the question would be, well, do these people have a, an identity back to the Mongols? Which, of course, they don't. Um, and, and this is what the whole point about ethnicity. It's about imagining subjectivity. It's not about objective culture traits that are readily visible to the social scientists. It's about the subjectivity of the people themselves. And then, it, now, that's not to say these traits are irrelevant. Much later, they become relevant when groups start to see these maps, start to become aware, actually, we share this in common. Actually, there's this group over here, actually. You know, those things may become important, maybe through politics or through, particularly through uh, print. And as people become literate, they start to understand. They start to be able to read. Memories start to be produced and, and transmitted over generations. Then you can have the formation of an ethnic group. The second point to, to, to note is that an ethnic group cannot consist of uh, a tribe that in which you can meet everybody. So it's got to be larger than a face-to-face -face community, what's sometimes called a Gemeinschaft. And for those of you who know Max Weber's work, the sociologist, uh, we have to be dealing with a community where you can only imagine uh, your co-ethnics. You never meet them in person. So in order to imagine them, there has to be some cultural communication. It might be print. Somewhat, the modernists would say it's only when you get uh, print pre printing presses, mass literacy, that you can get the spread of this ethnic consciousness. Prior to that, it's people in their villages, local oral traditions maybe, but people didn't travel widely, there was no uh, mass literacy, roads, all these things that would be needed to connect all those people 
in their isolated villages together into this network missed. So you only had local consciousness in face-to-face -face communities. You didn't have ethnic consciousness in imagined communities knit together by you know, whether it be government institutions, roads, uh, newspapers, mass education, mass conscription. All these things count only in the modern period. Now, we'll see that the ethnosymbolists will take issue with some of those points, arguing that actually there were, not necessarily here, but in, in other places, there were mechanisms, not necessarily print, but you did have, for example, religion, which would be seen as a pre-modern internet. At least some would say that that's, that's the case. Or that you had wandering singers and traders that could spread ideas a bit more. So, but this is just to say, culture zone is not the same as an ethnic group. Now, it's not to say that culture is unimportant. It can be used by an ethnic group. But in and of itself, it doesn't constitute ethnicity. Now, if you look even a little closer here at, um, I'm just going to, yeah, so, so, hang on. If you look at, uh, this is the northwest uh, coast, and you see that um, you've actually got, this is down to the local tribal areas. These would have been more Skagit or, or um, you know, some of these bands would be more real. They would be actually, would have an identity as a, a Skagit or as a, uh, as a Yakima or something like that. Um, so these were the actual tribes, but these larger areas would not have had uh, meaning for the people living in them. Um, so for example, the Coast Salish, which refers to the Northwest Coast uh, Indians, is not a relevant identity to the people. There's no one people named Coast Salish. It's just an anthropological designation for a group of peoples that share uh, related cultures. Um, however, now if we come forward to the modern period, Something like a term like Indian or First Nations, which refers to all of the Aboriginal peoples in Canada, uh, is meaningful. It's because it's become politicized. It's a category. It's, it's got meetings. It can communicate through newspapers and internet and various other forms of long distance communication and engage with other ethnic groups in the Canadian polity. So it's now is an ethnic group, is relevant. It wouldn't have been at the time the Europeans arrived because these groups were, were so far flung, they had no uh, mass mobilization, no internal organization, because they were too territorially disparate. Um, and, and we can see something similar if we look at other parts of the world. It's not exactly the same, because you had pre-colonial kingdoms in Africa, which, which really didn't exist in North America. Um, so that complicates the picture a little bit. But we can make a similar kind of point, which is that the anthropologists can draw a map here of the ethno-linguistic groups of Africa and how their cultures and languages are related. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these things are going to be, you know, this big green Bantu area. That's not an area necessarily where the people have a shared identity. I mean, there are all these different small ethnic identities within. Um, so this question is, is how these cultures are going to be used by the group that subsequently formed. At this point, prior to colonization, many of these groups would, would have been living in relatively isolated agricultural villages. And it's only later that their, their outlook becomes wider, that is, they identify with imagined communities rather than just a local village. Uh, the other thing we, we can say is that 
Um, you can have a layered form of ethnic identity. You can be you know, an Ijaw from the Niger Delta, who's a, you know, part of the Igbos, who's part of the southern part of Nigeria. So each one of these things is a, is a bigger layer. Um, or likewise, in the US, you can be Irish American, but and you're also white American and American. So that's three layers, right? The smallest one being the Irish, then the Irish is part of the white, which is then part of the American. And, and not all of those are going to be relevant for politics. Actually, being Irish Americans, not they're very relevant for American politics at all. It used to be, but uh, is no longer really relevant. Um, whereas being white American is, is relevant. It is a relevant category in US politics. Uh, similarly, in Africa, you know, you could say in Nigeria that now south-north is a relevant distinction. Uh, in, in Ivory Coast, similarly, south-north is a relevant distinction. In the past, that may not have been true. In the past, it might have been, you know, Biafra versus uh, Yoruba rather than south-north. So at different times and places, the different levels of your identity will become more or less relevant. Um, and also, you can get the formation of ethnicity through people moving to the cities. One of the reasons uh, the Earth tends to lose, I mean, there's about 6,000 languages in the world, uh, 1,000 in New Guinea, by the way. Um, but you have 6,000 languages. So in principle, we could have 6,000 ethnic groups and 6,000 countries. We've only got about 200 countries. Um, and actually, one language is, is going extinct every, I don't know how long. We're losing languages all the time. I don't know if it's every month or, or every week or whatever. Uh, and one of the reasons that, that you are seeing a die out of these languages is because these groups are amalgamating into larger units, moving to the cities. Uh, urbanization is associated with a decline in ethnic diversity because these little groups moved to the cities, form larger groups. Um, so part of what's going on is simply scaling up from small villages to larger units, uh, small clans and lineages to larger ethnic groups. And then you, then you also have assimilation. So the, the powerful ethnic groups, uh, such as the Kikuyu in Kenya or the Wolof in Senegal, these are groups that are urbanized. Uh, so they're higher status, so people tend to assimilate to them rather than the reverse, so they grow in strength. Um, so all of these things are happening. But, but uh, again, I just want to make that point that just because a group speaks a related language doesn't mean they share an identity. They, they, they share culture in some way, but they don't have a shared consciousness. Shared consciousness being the key, not shared objective cultural similarity. Um, and likewise, we can talk about Europe the same way. You know, we can say, okay, there's a, a, Latin, a Latin language area, a Romance language area down here, and a German, Germanic-speaking area here. Ireland is, is included here for the moment in the Germanic-speaking because it's an English-speaking country. Uh, there's also Celtic-speaking French here in Brittany, parts of Ireland, parts of Wales. So that, that's kind of a map. And then you've got um, your Slavic languages there. Now, we can ask a similar question. Does everybody who speaks a Germanic language share an identity? Actually, probably not. It's, it's maybe some people are aware that German's related to Dutch and English, but that's a pretty weak uh, identity. But it's a shared culture area. Similarly with the Slavic languages, 
I mean, you would never say that the Poles identify with the Russians, right? Um, but they do share, you know, their languages are, are linked to each other. Um, and similarly with, um, with the Latin languages down here. Uh, but it's, it's making a similar point that is shared culture is not the same thing as shared identity. So yes, there are cultural commonalities, but there's not shared identity in, for the most part. There can sometimes be. Sometimes there can be some shared identity uh, in some of these language areas. But uh, the, the point we want to ask is, well, this was already there prior to the formation of ethnicity. You know, you, you already had in Europe, prior to the establishment of ethnic groups, you had different languages being spoken which were more or less related to each other. And you actually did have these divisions between, you know, Latin languages and Germanic-speaking languages and Slavic-speaking languages that were there prior to modern state, prior to modern ethnic group formation. And the question that we might ask is, were those divisions actually important? for the subsequent formation of uh, ethnic consciousness. And John Armstrong, who's a, a recently deceased but quite well-known famous uh, ethno-symbolist writer, makes the argument that along with religious divisions between uh, Catholic, Orthodox, and, and ultimately Protestant, uh, these cultural formations did shape the, the establishment of ethnicity so that People on these boundaries, in particular, realized that they spoke languages they couldn't understand. And some of the intellectuals who propounded ideas of Frenchness or Germanness um, would have lived or been aware of these cultural boundaries. So the cultural stuff, even though it wasn't, it's not the same thing as ethnicity, uh, subsequent ethnic intellectuals could use these and say, "Ow, this is what we are. We we are." French because we speak a different language from the Germans. And we're going to call them Germans and we're going to call us French. So, so actually, these cultural things do matter because they can be used to establish ethnic boundaries. But the point is that they're being used. That it's not natural. That it's not an automatic thing. That just because you have a cultural difference, automatically you've got identity differences. This has to be constructed and built. You have to actually, within England, yes, there's a difference between England and France. But you actually have to have internal communication so that people in you know, Dorset and Northumbria can imagine themselves part of the same English thing. And they can, they can relate that to being different from another, you know, France, Scotland, Ireland. They, they can imagine those big differences. So that requires a certain, if it, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't require reading and maps, it does require at least um, some other form of spreading the identity. Okay, so again, it's, it's that same point. Culture zones is not the same thing as ethnic consciousness. <laughs> and for the most part, a lot of the modernist writers you'll, you'll encounter, like Ernest Gellner or the former late president of this institution, Eric Hobsbawm, will, would have made the argument that you had people living in relatively isolated feudal villages who didn't move around much, didn't really have access to those networks that could make them aware of the bigger picture. That, that they were part of an imagined community called France, called Spain, called Germany, what have you. They were only aware of being, uh, you know, a peasant in some village in Burgundy. Uh, others, ethnosymbolists, would say, well, no, that's too simplistic a picture, actually. There was more movement, uh, more trading, and they were wandering 
singers and so on that carried around shared myths and folk tales and so on. But, so that's, that's kind of the debate there in terms of uh, pre-modern, the pre-1789 map of Europe. And, and, and we can kind of ask similar questions too if we look at, a, at an old map of Europe that goes way back to, in this case, 814. Now here there are again lines on the map, but they're drawn by uh, contemporary scholars. Not very recent, but you know, uh, I don't know if this is from the 18th century, this map. But much, much later scholars who would then have drawn in these lines. Now these were real political boundaries, but some of the you know, you have Slavonic tribes written on there, and you've got Wends. Uh, Wends are, are a group that scholars of ethnicity like to talk about as an example of a group that disappeared, even though there's some attempts to revive them now. But you know, so so there are these these maps of of you know Kingdom of the Avars. You know, were the Avars an ethnic group? I mean, the question here is part of this is the political divisions, part of this is people imputing cultural identities, but it's not clear that the Khazars or the Avars actually did have a um, common identity that extended to all people living in this area that went from the elites down to the masses. We very often we don't really know what these people thought because we weren't able to wander around with a microphone in 814 and just see what the self-identity of the people in all those villages was. Um, so you have scholars arguing over what exactly, how they thought of themselves. And many modernists would say, oh, the people didn't move at all. They went, only walked five miles from their village. They couldn't read, blah, blah, blah. And therefore, they only had a very localized identity. And they didn't have a national, didn't have an ethnic identity. So the question we want to know then is, well, when does it arise? Uh, and why does it arise? Uh, and, and there are different arguments about how this occurs. Um, and one is through this process of uh, integration and differentiation. Um, and, and, so, yeah. so, so, you know, two, two of the sort of bedrock principles when we talk about the origin of nations or ethnic groups, one is kind of a territorial political principle. This is more the modernist storyline that what you had was groups conquering other groups and absorbing them politically into the territory. Uh, and so the, the, the engine of change here is political. And you heard that story last week very much, this idea of uh, political territorial leading to the sort of city-states and empires as the natural units. Uh, but then you have another principle, which we're maybe talking about a little more this week, which is, is genealogical, where you get related groups, clans, lineages, who are related in genealogical terms fusing together to, to form larger units and ultimately then forming uh, a super family, if you like, which becomes big enough that it's an ethnic group where then you won't meet everybody. You have to imagine your uh, co-ethnics. And then you have these arrows. So for example, uh, you get a tribe that forms through conquest like the Zulus, and then they may subsequently intermarry, and then membership becomes more about descent and genealogy than just about who got conquered, or it could go the other way where you had a, a bunch of lineages, related groups come together, form a group, and then they could go on the march and conquer areas, and suddenly membership is more about territory and politics than it is about blood, uh, shared blood ties. So uh, those are the sort of two, two sort of modes, and then ultimately we then come to the 
formation of nations. And, and this route really forma is a sort of French style top-down state nation. So the nations formed by the political unit of the state. Whereas another route might be, you know, perhaps the route that Ireland or Poland took, which is that you start with the ethnic group, which then breaks away from a, an existing empire to form a nation, ethnic nation. Uh, okay. And, and one of the key processes then in, in the formation of ethnic groups is, is this integration process. Smaller units fusing to become big units, maybe because they're being attacked, so they have to band together for the common defense, or maybe because they conquer others and grow larger. Both of those sorts of processes could lead to an expansion of scale of the kind we're interested in. You also can sometimes get groups splitting off from a larger uh, group. And so the, uh, the Scotch-Irish in uh, Northern Ireland who split off from the Scottish in Scotland uh, to form a new group. So that's, that's an example of that breaking off differentiation. Um, important in all this is the increase in scale and also uh, improvements in communication within a wide area. Uh, roads, perhaps, ultimately uh, literacy and communications. And that helps to spread the consciousness, uh, the group consciousness, to a bigger, to a larger and larger number of people. And that's very important. And then it, when we get to the age of the nation state, then we start to get homogenous languages where the dialects are actually, um, might be a standardized version of the language based on, in the case of, say, Italy, it's the Tuscan dialect, which became the standard Italian. Prior to that, uh, everyone had their own dialect, and very often it was hard for, for people in one area to understand the others, because there's a lot of variation. Um, and then we get to a, a situation, similarly in France, by the way. Um, so, so again, this, this process of expanding the scale of human interaction from local villages to imagined communities. That's really what's behind all this. Um, and it's about contact. So there, there's the contact between people over large distances, which can only occur with good communications, such as roads, and perhaps you know, common currency. Perhaps it, it occurs through literacy. Um, improved communication, but also being aware, increasingly, of other uh, imagined communities, and that comes through contact with the other, and being and that awareness of difference, and then you get to a stage of the intellectuals in the group specifying what it is about us that's different from them, language typically, sometimes religion, so specifying what is different, and then coming up and developing an ethno history about myths, heroes, memories, uh, which is passed down and reproduced by. Uh, cultural institutions. Um, in addition, you've got the ebb and flow of empires, dynasties, city-states that we talked about last time, which is also having an impact, of course, on those identities. Uh, so it's, it's partly about politics, but, but perhaps it's also partly about what's going on with religious leaders and cultural leaders and how are they seeing the world and how are they disseminating uh, their ideas about these imagined communities down to the population. Um, and actually, fission and fusion is pretty similar. Just It's a similar point to the integration differentiation. So this is differentiation groups breaking away from each other. Taiwanese are breaking off from mainland China to form a new group. Fusion is groups mixing together 
blending together to form a larger group. Now, both of them are important when we come to the formation of ethnicity. Now I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the work of the ethnosymbolist school who really spent a fair bit of time thinking about the pre-modern situation in Europe and Asia uh, and what and how we get to the origin of ethnic groups. For Anthony Smith and John Armstrong and Adrian Hastings, they're very much dating the, the rise of ethnicity to the rise of Neolithic societies, in other words, agricultural societies that have written records. And that goes back all the way you know, 6,000 BC, really, to the Sumerians. It goes back a long way. So they would go back to the Assyrians, the Egyptians, uh, the ancient Greeks and Persians and say, no, these were ethnic groups. Uh, and they formed you know, in the ancient world. So the ancient world, uh, for, ma for many of these ethno-symbolist writers, did have ethnic groups. Uh, and they also talk about how you can get the emergence of these imagined communities before the age of mass literacy, before the modern uh, period. And Smith outlines two major, uh, two major forms of, of ethnic formation. One is a kind of, if you like, bottom-up type of formation, what he calls vertical uh, ethnicity, and the other is a more top-down type, which is dynastic or, or lateral, different terms here. I've used, this is the term he uses, lateral aristocratic. What you need to just remember is that this is associated with uh, dynasties which sink roots into a population and try and spread their identity down uh, the social scale. So it starts with an aristocratic elite in an empire or kingdom, and they then spread the identity down, whereas this is, takes different forms as we'll see in a minute, such as tribal confederation. Uh, in terms of those, that second category, so we saw the first category were the dynastic or aristocratic ethnic groups. Uh, examples might be the Turks, um, and, and where you had an empire, you had a Turkish elite, which then spreads its identity down the social scale. Here we have groups that are formed more through other kinds of processes other than elite diffusion. So one process is uh, tribes coming together to form a larger group. Okay, and I have some examples that Smith provides, Kurds, Arabs, the Irish, and the Zulus. It's not to say that the Arabs or the Kurds are only formed through tribal confederation. They may also have, other of these processes might have contributed to the formation or the shifting of the, of the group known as the Arabs. But tribal confederation was the most important um, originator. The second mechanism that Smith cites are groups that lived on the frontier. They could have been on a trading route. So Switzerland, for example, is on a, on a trading route from the Mediterranean up to northern Europe. So they would have seen a flow of people speaking different languages. And that just makes you more aware of difference and therefore more aware of who you are. Once you're more aware of others, you become more aware of who you are. So these are people who had a lot of contact with difference. Now, the Swiss are an example of that. Uh, Armenians are another example of that because groups like the Armenians who lived on the boundary between uh, the Muslim world and Christendom, that is an important boundary through the Middle Ages. So people who were on that boundary were also aware of cultural difference in a major way. And a lot of groups 
would, would consider themselves to be defenders of the faith, whether it be holy warriors for Islam or holy warriors for Christianity. A lot of these groups would style themselves defenders of the faith, uh, such as the Armenians or the Berbers on the Muslim side. So these are examples of groups that lived on these cultural frontiers or trade routes. Another trade route ran through present day uh, uh, the Levant, which is Lebanon, Syria, Israel, uh, was also another important trade route. And so you saw the formation of different ethnic groups on, in that area as well. Um, Smith and, and Abiel Rashwald and others also say, well, we, we can look to the ancient world, ancient Greece and Persia, Yes, there were city-states like Sparta and Athens, whereas modernists would say, oh no, people just had their identity as Athenians or Spartans. The, the ethnosyphilists would say, well, I know there was also this notion of Hellas, of common Greekness, and that too was a consciousness that there were Greeks and there were barbarians that were, and actually the word for ethnicity comes from the Greek word for barbarian, someone else, right? So there's this link to um, the other, being ethnic. Uh, and that's really kind of where the term comes from, the Greek word. So uh, they would argue that the Greeks or the ancient Persians constituted ethnic groups where there's a consciousness. And of course, it's passed down through Greek myths and through writing amongst those, that tiny Greek elite. But, but, it, but those uh, productions and, and, and readings would have been spread to a wider element of the population. Um, and so that is another form of, of pre-modern ethnic identity, according to the ethno-symbolists. And then lastly, we have religious diasporas and sects. So even a modernist would, would admit that religion was important prior to 1789, the modern age. Uh, and then for the ethno-symbolists, religion plays a big part in spreading ethnic consciousness. So it's not just Christianity, Islam, and so on. It's actually these, uh, these religions can become ethnic. How does that happen? Well, if we take religious sects like the Jews or the Druze, uh, they were at one time proselytizing faiths. That is, they were, they were open to new members and seeking to expand their ranks through converting people. But at some point, uh, that stopped, and membership became possible only through being born into the group or marrying into the group. And that's when you get a shift from being a purely religious group to, to being an ethnic group because it's now going to be about relatedness and common ancestry and descent. Uh, and that's true of a number of these other groups as well uh, down here. Diasporas too, if you think of the, uh, the ancient Jewish diaspora connecting China up to Eastern Europe, down to the Mediterranean and the Muslim world, huge distances, there's no way that those people could all know each other face to face. Uh, but at the same, by the same token, because they shared a common culture, you could get a spread of the consciousness through religion. And that, that again, is one of the arguments that ethnosymbolists make, is that you had processes such as religion, uh, which helped to spread a common consciousness before the modern age uh, amongst different groups. And so you have, for example, the Greek and Lebanese diaspora, and also the Parsis uh, and the Jews and the Armenians, all of whom had a distinct religion, uh, Armenian Christianity, Parsi, Zoroastrianism, and, and Jews. So that helped them to, to bind the diaspora together. 
Okay, so moving away from the ancient world uh, for a minute, the ancient, uh, Europe and the Muslim world, moving away to look at the post-colonial uh, world. What we see in the post-colonial world is something similar to what I was talking about at the beginning with culture zones and, um, and ethnicity. So you had outsiders coming into, for example, Africa. So this would have been missionaries, it sometimes would have been anthropologists, colonial administrators, traders who would have come to the area and written diaries, traveler's diaries, uh, describing what they saw. And actually, that's not very different from what the Romans did when they came to Europe. If you read Tacitus, he's talking about the English, and he's talking about the Germans, and he's talking about these different groups. He's calling them Germans. It doesn't mean that they thought of themselves as Germans. What he's really talking about are Germanic tribes that sometimes band together, some groups of them sometimes band together. But it's the outsider's gaze on, on a territory that's important. And similarly here, so a lot of times, colonial missionaries and administrators would, would actually mark down what the languages, customs were, what the groups were. So they kind of helped to define the culture. And that sometimes uh, would be taken up by the people that they were categorizing. Actually, might actually say, actually, that makes sense to me. Um, and the elites, the intellectuals of those groups would then lead subsequently uh, to the formation of ethnic groups, such as the Yoruba in Nigeria, who were formed in the late 19th century by Western-educated intellectuals who would, would have been in touch with um, the writings of these missionaries and these explorers and government administrators and, and start to try and mobilize a group, formulate a history. And often this was, I won't say necessarily invented out of thin air, but uh, they would just work on whatever materials they had, be that folk tales, be it um, customs, archaeology, whatever they could use to create this sense of having a past. Perhaps they would draw lines to uh, mythical kingdoms or whatever to, to give themselves a past. Now, that's not to say in Africa you also had important pre-colonial kingdoms, and those, those actually were important nuclei for subsequent ethnic groups. So you had the Ashanti, Akan uh, kingdom in present-day Ghana, which uh, formed the basis of what is now the Akan ethnic identity, the largest ethnic group of Ghana. Uh, Zulus, Congo was another important uh, group. So the Congo uh, formed the basis of the Congo ethnic group, which are the largest ethnic group in the Republic, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. So you had had some kingdoms prior to the arrival of the Western colonists. And that was also important for the formation of our identity. And, and also in Asia, places like Thailand, where you had a Thai kingdom uh, as well. And you had Korean kingdoms and obviously China Empire. So these, these previous formations would be important for the formation of subsequent ethnic identity. But there was also this process of, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, as you get into southern Africa, really you didn't have, in southern Africa, you didn't have a lot of those pre-colonial kingdoms. Uh, and so there you had a lot of this activity whereby um, it was native intellectuals reading what the missionaries and explorers and government administrators had to say, forming their own ideas, and in, in a sense codifying identities and languages and creating ethnicity that way. Uh, and lastly, you had 
Um, sometimes through economic development and urbanization, groups from the countryside who initially only saw themselves as part of small tribes moving into the city, moving next to, relating best to people who spoke languages that were more similar to theirs, and that, in that way forming larger entities and transmitting that identity back to their home villages and therefore creating this process of integration of small units into bigger imagined communities. So these are all forms of, of ethnic identity creation. And then we come to the kind of more modern period where you have the influence of romanticism, which we're going to talk about subsequently. And, and this influences the thinking of a lot of native uh, intellectuals in Asia and Africa as well as they are writing down and creating the history of their group. And of course, this is happening at the same time that, that the, the colonial states, the Nigerias and, and uh, Congos and, and other states, uh, Ethiopia and so on, not Ethiopia, but Nigeria. So these big states are being formed. They're trying to then subsequently create their own national identity at a higher level, right? Uh, but you've also got those ethnic identities forming down below. And because and, and, often now, you know, we'll talk about, oh, colonial administrators drew lines on the map that cut through ethnic groups. So they cut some Somalis off in Ethiopia from Somalia, or they cut some, um, some, some UA off in, in Togo and instead of including them in Ghana or whatever. So these lines were drawn without regard to ethnicity. But, I think we have to be careful because those ethnic groups were very often also forming at the same time. Now, it may be that the ethnic groups came together before the state was able to get its national identity rolling and, and instituted in a population through mass education and through mass conscription and all these things. And if that's the case, then it's because the ethnic groups got their act together and mobilized first that we then have a situation where uh, it's very difficult for nation builders to succeed because the ethnic identities are already now entrenched. Uh, and it's not so easy to move those and assimilate them anymore. Uh, just in the time I've got left, I'm just going to give you a very quick whirlwind uh, tour of, of how some of these arguments about ethnic group formation apply in the United Kingdom. I just thought that's, a, that's one way of at least trying to sort of bring this across in a more understandable way. So we could say, go way back to Roman Britain when uh, this was a, a Celtic-speaking area. And you, know, you can make the argument that the communities at that time were very small-scale. They didn't have clearly any British identity. It was small-scale uh, communities. Um, the Romans bring in Christianity. Now, you do have various tribal designations. But again, these sorts of maps uh, are, are mainly uh, those of subsequent scientists or archaeologists, they're not really necessarily the way people thought of themselves. Uh, they may be based on you know, pottery. They may be based on historical accounts of the Romans. That doesn't mean that those are real identities of the way people thought of themselves. Um, and then just moving very swiftly on, we get to the Anglo-Saxon conquest, fifth century invasion. Um, the fall of the Roman Empire was followed by a lot of Germanic warrior bands who banded together into larger groups to attack the Roman Empire. And when in, in banding together into those large groups, some have argued you get the formation of ethnicity. John Armstrong says these, these warrior bands, such as the Anglo-Saxons, uh, did form 
uh, ethnic groups because they had to be very large to attack the Romans. Uh, so in this case, you've got uh, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jews fusing together. That's a fusion of people from present-day Denmark and Germany and also uh, subsequently Scandinavia into a new, uh, into a new group. And then, so there's a fusion process going on. King Edward of the Anglo-Saxons brings um, all of England under his control. And so you get the formation of, of this central area. Yeah, so that larger entity out of smaller entities. And these kingdoms, um, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, helps, help to create this English identity starting perhaps in 650. Now, of course, as you'll see in the readings today, there's a big dispute over how important this really was. Some would say it's a tiny, tiny elite. Uh, there wasn't this common consciousness. You know, maybe there were certain elements of shared culture, but it was a sort of arrangement of convenience to, to attack an area. There really identities were only about Christianity. There wasn't anything English there. Uh, but others would disagree with that, and they'd say you know they point to events such as uh, King Alfred. Wessex and his exploits against the Scandinavians. And they would then also particularly point to the writings of monks such as the Venerable Bede, uh, medieval, uh, so these ancient chroniclers who, so Bede wrote the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and he talked about, he used the term Anglia. Uh, so the first mention, if you like, of a term, which is the ancestor of the term English. Uh, so. Someone like an Adrian Hastings would say this is evidence that there was this English consciousness, at least amongst the elite, uh, which had formed already by the 8th century. And, and, and that this then uh, is manifested in politics through, um, through the exploits of King Alfred. Others would say, the modernists would say, well, a lot of the, the mythology around King Alfred was made up in the uh, 18th and 19th century by Romantic English nationalists. Uh, doesn't doesn't have a lot of basis in actual recorded fact. That's a debate uh, that, that exists between these two. Uh, similarly, if we go to uh, Wales, so the term Cymru, or, or uh, referring to um, fellow countrymen, emerges also in the eighth century, and you also see the formation of Scottish kingdoms with their own myths of origin, which actually go back to the line of Scottish kings traces itself, in fact, back to migration from Ireland. So that's uh, sometimes also used as evidence that there was a Scottish consciousness as well, and a Welsh consciousness emerging quite early on. I mean, we're talking about 8th, 9th, 10th century, so way, way before the modern period. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about this. There's clearly examples of groups breaking away from apparent stock, so the Welsh, Cornish, the Manx, they're all Celtic Britons that form separate groups. Uh, you also have, um, to some extent, the, the Anglo-Saxons breaking away from greater Germans, the greater German-speaking world to form a separate group called the English out of that German-speaking world. So it's something smaller from something bigger. Uh, but also you have these, these mixing processes of smaller units fusing together to form something bigger. So the English are fusing together you know, people from, from present-day Denmark, from Saxony, and Scandinavia into something larger. Or the Scots fused together a, a Gaelic tribe called the Scots uh, with a, a tribe called the Picts who form another, to form a new unit. And through this, there are also processes of meeting the other. So the Welsh and the English 
meeting each other and, and to some extent riffing off each other to, to become aware of their separateness and their separate identities. And then there are also, war is very important too. So this is where politics comes in. Fighting a battle against French-speaking Normans can help to forge a sense of common consciousness. But the debate is always, well, is it just a tiny elite fighting a tiny elite, the, the, immerse, you know, the, the, the elites who, who made war, whereas the mass of the population were just peasants and they were just passive in this drama? Or were there, was there actually mass participation? Because that, that question of mass participation is very important for theorists of nationalism. The modernists would say you didn't have that mass participation in the name of an identity which you need to be able to talk about nationalism. In the pre-modern period, you just had small numbers of, of knights, mercenary armies, professional armies, uh, not a mass military. Um, and just in terms of Smith's categories, we can look to uh, tribal confederations, in particular, the uh, amalgamation of Anglo-Saxons and Jews as a tribal confederation, uh, the Irish again as a tribal confederation. In terms of aristocratic ethnicity, we also have the the Scottish and English kingdoms, these elites who mobilize in the name of a particular group. So that's where it comes from, the elite filters down as they try and tax, perhaps conscript, not conscripting at this early stage, but trying to get the loyalty of a population for military endeavors. So that might be seen as an early case of aristocratic ethnicity. There are a few diasporas, such as the Scot-Irish and Anglo-Irish as well. Um, and, and there are, of course, different phases. So tribal confederation is, is occurring in a period when people are socially organized as tribes in a very simplistic, uh, a more simple form of social organization. Kingdoms and dynasties, arguably a more complex form of social and political organization, also contribute to the emergence of, of ethnicity. And of course, now we're getting confused. I mean, you've got the emergence of kingdoms and states, as well as the emergence of ethnic groups. And part of the question is, how are these things influencing each other? The formation of a, of a Welsh kingdom, of a Scottish kingdom, how did that then influence the emergence of a Scottish and a Welsh ethnic identity? Um, some would say, ah, it didn't matter much. You had English speakers in with the Scots, Scots speakers in with the English. So it was just about personal loyalty. It was about material considerations such as booty and being on the winning side. So it didn't really have a whole lot to do with shared identity. Uh, so that would be a modernist kind of claim. Uh, and so just the last couple of slides here. Uh, th there's a debate. Was there ethnicity in the Middle Ages in the United Kingdom? Uh, the ethnosymbolists would say yes, uh, because you had, um, you could start to, you, not only you had linguistically distinct cultures, um, but you had the mentioning of names such as Welsh, English, by chroniclers. So that indicates that there was a consciousness of these distinctions, not just objective differences in language terms, but you had a consciousness because it was written down, these names were used by the groups themselves. And therefore, that indicates that there were these separate identities, and they were important. Uh, in war, so the, you had major battles between the English and the Welsh and the Scots. Uh, so that indicates that these were relevant categories of identity. And you had the development of myths of origin and uh, 
as I say, a, a sense of ethno history as exemplified in works such as the medieval Anglo Saxon Chronicle. And then some would even extend to uh, the existence of local folk tales and folk memories. Um, William Wallace and King Arthur. Others would say those were subsequent 19th century embellishments and inventions. There's a debate to be had. So for the modernists, they would say it's really not until you get to the late 18th and 19th century that uh, a sense of Englishness, Welshness, Scottishness really emerges uh, on the basis of people being able to read, intellectuals being able to write and spread their message to a wider population uh, and a standardization of the culture, not just a bunch of very separate villages, but quite standardized language and culture. And that a lot of these, you know, Robin Hood and King Arthur and, and Robert the Bruce, a lot of these myths were thus subsequent creations, uh, in some cases out of thin air, by these romantic intellectuals. So that's, that's a very different way of seeing the world. It's to say that these, this ancient, long ethnic heritage is in fact something much more recent and much more invented, much more fabricated by the elites rather than something that is deeply rooted uh, and pre-modern. And that's kind of where a lot of this debate is. Finish up. And um, we'll see you, take, take a short break. We'll see you in about uh, 10 past. Anyone <laughs> has to sign the register, please do so.